Welcome to this, the third episode of the Elevation Podcast series hosted by the Colorado PGA. Hopefully, you've taken the time to listen in to our first two episodes with Chris McChesney and Trevor Reagan. Both of these guests really brought forward some ideas that can be put into place today and make a huge difference in the lives of our PGA members. Today's guest, Dr. Rick Jensen, was to be our presenting speaker at the 2020 Teaching Coaching Summit, but with all that has changed recently, we had to postpone that event. We are, however, working to figure out a time to bring Dr. Jensen back because this guy is pure gold. I'd never met Dr. Jensen prior to this recording, but I was intrigued by him. I was impressed by his experience and the idea that he works as both a subject matter expert in the golf industry, but also as a corporate guru working with financial institutions across the country. That combination blew me away, and I can safely say that after talking with him, I am even more impressed with Dr. Rick Jensen. Thanks to our co-host on this episode, Andy Hiltz. He was the driving force behind getting Dr. Jensen here for our teaching and coaching summit and proved to be our own subject matter expert in this episode. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy this episode of the Elevation podcast series hosted by the Colorado PGA. Thank you for joining us today uh, for this episode of the Elevation Podcast. Our co-host today is Andy Hiltz. Andy is a PGA Master Professional in Instruction. He's been a, a longtime member of our education committee. Um, career-wise, Andy is a Mississippi State PGM grad. We won't hold that against him. He spent 17 years at Golf Tech uh, as an instructor and an executive on their team. Spent time as the director of the Proponent Group uh, with Golf Channel and recently has opened up Hilts Golf, where he serves as the president of the organization. Andy's also the 2005 Colorado PGA Teacher of the Year. He twice won the Horton Smith Award in 2008 and 2015. Andy, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Our guest today is the upcoming host uh, presenter at our Colorado PGA Teaching Coaching Summit, which we'll be hosting on Thursday, April 23rd at Top Golf Thornton, Dr. Rick Jensen. Uh, Dr. Jensen uh, is a noted sports psychologist and really has his fingers, his hands in a number of different areas in the golf business. Dr. Rick, thank you for joining us today. And if you would, can you give us a little bit of background on... Uh, on your career. Certainly. Thanks for having me as well. Um, I guess what's relevant to this call is I, I started in the golf business. I taught golf when I was in college at a golf academy. It was my summer job, and that probably was my entree. played golf my entire life, taught golf throughout college at a summer academy up in New Hampshire, got a bug for the game or for coaching at that time, and then studied through school psychology, went to graduate school in psychology, and got my doctorate in sports psychology and exercise science and counseling psychology. So kind of a blend between those two worlds. Um, right out of school, took a job at the University of Florida, and I was um, a psychologist there. I was then became the sports psychologist. I worked with the University of Florida golf teams. Also was working with the Stanford golf teams. This is in the um, mid, what, early 1990s. 
And then through that, that transition just started working with touring pros. I was fortunate enough that when I was at Florida and at Stanford, both those teams were solid and a number of men and women turned pro. And it kind of gave me access to the PGA and LPGA tours. So started consulting with touring pros in the early 90s and have been doing it for 30 years. Um, and throughout that time period, also got involved with the PGA of America, the PGA of Canada, PGA of Spain, and started working with instructors and coaches. And I have a passion for that. Frankly, today I have more of a passion for that than I do in working with players directly and started transitioning my business to be more of a coach to coaches and a trainer to trainers and started the Certified Golf Coaches Association, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, really focused on helping golf professionals become better coaches and teachers um, in their practices. And I would say spend more of my time in golf teaching teachers today than I do teaching players. Uh, That's why where I first, uh, I guess, had a chance to meet you, Dr. Rick. So that was uh, the first time I saw you speak was just was mind blowing with the concepts that you had when it came to instruction. I guess walk walk us through a little bit more about your certified golf coaches program and uh, where where did you see the opportunities? Where did you see coaches, you know, not hitting on all cylinders? And and I guess talk talk us through how that's going now. I think the opportunity lied in the fact that when you when you're working with touring pros, it's a unique opportunity. Obviously, I think many of us that are in the golf profession hope to one day work with players at that level. But it's not real world. You know, these players are they're doing it for a living. That's all they focus on throughout their throughout their careers. And it's teaching touring pros is very different than teaching the average club club player. I've always felt like my job in working with touring pros has been so much easier than a club professional's job somebody who's coaching a player from either, uh, you know, the beginning of the game where they have never had a golf ball before, or even somebody who shoots a hundred and would like to break 80. It's a very different process. Um, so the opportunity for me was in getting around different, uh, teaching professionals. One of the things I found, and I was guilty of it as well as they're many times they're golfers themselves. Maybe they played college golf, tried to play the tour and got into the PGA by default for many of them, but didn't go to school in sports science or coaching or skill acquisition. And what I found when I frankly went to graduate school in that area is I felt like I should have gone back and give the money back to all the people I taught prior to having that education. I, I just called it malpractice. I think what I was doing was not based in science. It was just based in the guy who had taught me how to teach golf. And frankly, when I reflect on it. I don't know how much he knew as well, but he was just a really good golfer. And I was a pretty good golfer at the time. And it just seemed like those of us who were better golfers and got into the teaching profession were allowed to teach people who were less good golfers. Um, but oftentimes we questioned, am I do what I'm, am what I, what I'm doing? Is it correct? And are the processes that I'm using correct? And for me, it was, I could reach more players by having an impact on the coaches. You know, I, I only had so much capacity and I was focused only on touring pros. And frankly, I was at capacity and I couldn't really impact the club player. I stopped taking them as referrals and didn't have the capacity to do it. So the opportunity for me, Andy, was that I could reach more players and hopefully impact the game more by impacting coaches who each of those coaches are working with hundreds of players. And, and, and frankly, try to 
improve the entire game that way. Yeah, you can certainly have a much greater reach at that point in time, too. You mentioned malpractice, and I know, you know, I guess speaking from experience, I certainly was guilty of not teaching great lessons, you know, the, the first few times I got on the tee. I guess walk me through when you say malpractice, like what was, what was, uh, where was my malpractice lawsuit, uh, with the players I first started working with? It may have been the same place as mine. I, I know when I started every, again, this is aging me, but I hid behind a graph check camera, um, which was our version of, of V1 or TrackMan at the time, which were, was simply a Polaroid where we would get eight pictures of the golf swing. And frankly, I was taught that that was the starting point. You know, like, here, hit a couple balls. I sat there leaning on a seven iron with a bucket of balls and had someone hit some balls, and I took pictures of their golf swing. I didn't really have any stats about their game. I didn't know where their strengths or weaknesses were. I didn't really have a history other than walking to the range with them from the pro shop and talking with them briefly to kind of see what were they there for. And I try to get a couple quick goals, and when you're doing it in that version, everybody pretty much says, I'd like to hit it better, hit it further, hit it purer, hit it more consistent. And I'd look right at their swing and, frankly, just kind of do a comparison of where they had swing errors versus the pictures I had in my mind of what a model swing looked like and what the causes of error might be in their golf swing. Um, and didn't have really any practice strategies, didn't know that I was going to be involved in their practice. I did everything as a one-hour lesson, would send the person away. And frankly, if they did come back, it would be like a month later, and they looked exactly like they did the first time. And I had to make up a new lesson, so it looked like I was giving them something else, you know, so that I didn't feel like I was reteaching the same lesson. But the many times my private thoughts was, you know, this person hasn't changed at all. And I didn't really even know that the solution might be me being involved in their practice, me getting them to come more regularly, making my lessons more affordable, putting them in situations where I could help them with the transfer of skills and the actual acquisition of the skill over time. It was literally just a quick fix lesson model, fault and fixes analysis, prescription. I could usually get them hitting it pretty good in an hour, but today I would say that's purely because of a concept called guidance, you know, in terms of the presence of all the, the the feedback and the inputs of a coach. And so all of us that can teach at a even a basic level can get someone hitting it good within an hour. And But it doesn't stick. And as I became a sports psychologist, I realized I got a ton of referrals because coaches would refer people to me and say, guy hits it great when he's with me but goes away and can't, can't transfer it to the golf course. And the reason must have been mental. I frankly built a whole business around referrals of coaches who found that players they thought were mental because they couldn't transfer the skill from the range to the golf course or from a lesson to a golf course. And and now today I'm always sending them back to the coach, going it's really not mental. It's it's you never really adequately learn the skill. And I'd argue that ninety five percent of the error is in the game is students have not adequately learned the skill of ball control. They don't control the ball well enough to not be mental. Yep, 
I certainly saw the same thing when I first started teaching that that blew me away the number of times when people would come back for their next lesson or their third or fourth or fifth lesson. And it was the same as it was in the first lesson. Like it took forever for them to make those changes and certainly a fault of mine for not delivering great practice, you know, programs and ensuring that they were practicing the right way. Walk me through those. So obviously you're taking on students or I don't know how many students you take on now, but your first session with somebody, I assume is very different now than it was back in the early 90s. Walk me through what your first session is and I guess walk me through too. Do you use technology? I'm, I'm a huge fan of technology. I, I believe it's incredibly important to deliver an accurate diagnosis of what I'm looking at. And that's, you know, quite frankly, why I use technology so I don't miss anything in my, in my diagnosis. But what's your first session look like? And, and do you incorporate technology in that first session? Maybe in the first session. Rarely in the first session do I need technology, but I always have technology available. And so I've always used technology and value it, but I view technology outside. I think traditional teaching tends to view technology as kind of a let me slow down the golf swing so I can see where the technical errors are that I might not be able to see with the naked eye. You know, that tends to be, and that's gotten to an extent where with TrackMan, there's algorithms built in where we can, you know, look at spin ratio of a ball, right? So the the research on technology is more that technology helps the coach way more than it helps the student and maybe not even doesn't even help the students can detract from a student's learning that's the research on technology so coaches love technology and they should because it has incredible value for coaches what coaches don't understand is the lack of value to the student in terms of the technology. So where a coach sees it through a lens of it's helpful for me to be able to do a a deeper dive cause and effect analysis using technology, students don't necessarily have to engage in that process as well to learn. For them, they don't have the ability to sort through all the, frankly, the, the noise in the data like coaches are because coaches are trained to do it. Um, so my starting point is more about where are a player's strokes coming from and why. It's not where's their error in your golf swing and why. It's where are your unnecessary strokes in your golf game coming from and why. And if you do an honest assessment at that level, you'll start looking at things like, are you a good putter versus a good chipper versus a good um, ball striker? Can you hit fairways versus greens versus, you know, and you'll start paying attention to that. Um, Then you can back into, okay, if you're not, if you're hitting a lot of balls out of play, for many players that we see at a club level, it is because they have errors in their golf swing. But then I even ask the question, why do you have errors in your golf swing? And it's not what are the errors in your golf swing, but why do you have errors in your golf swing? And the answer for more of them is they don't take lessons. They don't see a golf professional enough. They're not part of a coaching or a practice program. And probably the number one reason is they don't practice. They just don't practice. So if someone's not going to practice, what purpose does a golf lesson serve? for me to show somebody the eight errors that are in their golf swing and why they hit it sideways. If they don't practice, they don't have money for instructions, they don't have time to, to work on their game. And that, that in itself I would consider today malpractice. Why would I give someone a solution that they can't execute on? 
because they don't have the ability to do that, whether it's resource time or access to coaching or practice facilities. So I'm more, my initial assessment is more, are the conditions for improvement present? And can we make them present? And if we can, then let's go. And now we could start to work on your golf swing, work on your ball striking, work on your club delivery skills. So it's just a different starting point than where I used to start when I felt like um, what we're referring to malpractice. I just felt like I didn't know that there was an earlier starting point and certainly didn't have processes to engage in that. Yeah. Do you track any stats at all or require your players to bring stats to a, a first session? 100%, yeah. But again, I'm working at a higher level. I mean, I don't know that if I was working at a club, the first session I would not track stats because you don't have the ability to do it. My first session at a club level would be to hook the player that I can really help them improve in the game. And I'd, I'd see the first meeting being more of a consultation as to communicating to that person that I might even do a swing analysis as part of it to show them that there are errors there and the errors are what are causing the error in the ball control. Um, but then I'd, I'd make sure I'd wrap that first session as why do these errors even persist? Why do they exist? And those, those reasons are going to be more likely that that person has never stayed long-term with any one coach, is watching too much YouTube, is getting Golf Magazine and Golf Digest on a monthly basis, and trying to find quick fixes into their swing. I'd use the initial consultation to, to confirm that, yes, there's errors there, they are repairable, we can improve, but the process of how they're trying to improve is not adequate. And that if they engage with me, I will engage them in skill acquisition, transfer training opportunities that will actually build their game over time and try to sell them more into a coaching program, not just a, every time you're bleeding, come to me and see me and I'll show you what's wrong. Yeah, I love it. Love the coaching program. That's absolutely huge, in my, in my opinion, at least. Uh, time frame for a first session, would you do it for an hour? Would you do it for four hours? Would you do it for two? I've always done it longer, but again, working with touring pros, they've got the time, they've got the commitment, they've got the resources. I think it's adequate to do an hour. So I think put, I think what's real, Andy, in the game is players are expecting an hour lesson. So they're willing to sign up for it. If you ask a player to come for a four-hour skills assessment, you'd run the risk of you wouldn't get a number of players who would even attend. Um, so there's the reality of the business side of it that we have to compromise with what they're expecting. Think their expectation is an hour but i think in the hour i'd get them to sign up for the hour and then i'd make it clear that i don't deliver training through one hour lessons whenever you want to sign up on you schedule i would be using the hour to convince the person that the reason they're not getting better is their process is is likely broken and that in in an indirect way i'm kind of going it's fortunate that you ran into someone like me who doesn't just blindly kind of go where all the sheep are going here's here's reality i leverage that because i have a doctorate in that space so i think for me i'm able to leverage hey the system's broken but it's understandable because the system isn't full of people with doctorates in motor learning and sports science i think those of you that are more trained just want to have your same version of doing that in the sense of what you can offer to the student and and what you're willing to do it has to not feel like a money grab it has to be a authentic um, invested in helping players get better as you can see here at the club most of the better players do work with me it's not coincidental 
It's not, they're not better necessarily because of me. It's because my processes are consistent with their own experiences about why they're getting better. Um, it's more about me facilitating deliberate practice in your learning and less about me showing you all the errors in your golf swing. If you want to find a bunch of errors in your golf swing, you can do that for free with Revolution Golf, with YouTube, with Golf Magazine. Why would you pay a bunch of money to do that? Dr. Rick, I think that's a, a perfect segue into a question that, that I've been wanting to ask. You know, you, you look at a, an assistant professional uh, or an instructor and they go out there and grind every single day and they're just trying to give that quick fix because that's, you know, what they have time for and that's what they have bandwidth for. But, you know, it took you going and getting a doctorate to understand that there is a lot more when it comes to coaching, a lot more when it comes to teaching. What do you tell that, you know, instructor or, or how do you encourage that instructor to, to kind of think outside of the box and take that leap forward to say, hey, I want to start a coaching program or I want to develop, you know, what I'm doing already into something much greater than than what I have the capability of doing, whether it's in that hour, in that day or in that season. I'm Patrick, I think that it's really all about education. It's that the instructor commits to a lifelong journey of education themselves. You know, there's there's even research, like the more we know, the more we learn that we don't know, Um, because you start to see that there's gaping holes in what it is you're doing. I I don't think a year goes by that I don't read a piece of research or hear someone at a conference say something that's kind of backed in research that I go, oh, my God, I have to stop doing. I've been saying that for years. I can't believe I've been saying that. And I have to stop or I have to change the way I'm using technology or the the way I deliver a message. Um, So I think that this is the um, kind of the conversation I've had with the PGA of America for 30 years of, you know, is there education program really sufficient to bring teachers along um, and just kind of the gaping holes that are in their process. They're trying to manage people that aren't all teaching. You know, many of these people are head pros and go out and give a lesson every now and then. That's a real, for me, that's not my audience. My audience is the person who wants to teach for a living, who they want to kind of master the process of facilitating skill acquisition. And if you're going to do that, you frankly won't look like the average you know, assistant pro coming out of the shop to give Mrs. Jones a quick lesson. That I don't know that I'm going to eliminate that. What I want to do is differentiate from that, from those that are more educated and informed and, and frankly, trained. One of the biggest challenges, Henry Brunton, who's kind of my partner with the Certified Golf Coaches Association, he's a golf coach out of Toronto, runs three academies. We, we constantly are saying, like, we have programs that we help uh, coaches put in place to, so that they can provide supervised practice and on-course training and more coaching platforms. Our challenge has always been we could give someone the platform of how to do that, how to build for it, how to structure it, but they also have to have the education of how to facilitate the coaching. So to just throw an assistant golf pro out there and say, here, we're going to do a group instead of individual because we want you to be able to do some transfer training. If that coach, he or herself, doesn't understand how to facilitate transfer training or how to incorporate mental skills development into a technical training session, they can't execute on it, even though the structure could be in place. So it's going to happen over time. It doesn't happen overnight. And I always just say, be better than you were the day before. Just keep getting better. And and over time, you'll get really good. 
Awesome. Awesome. Love it. <clears throat> yeah, I do, I do too. Obviously, I'm, you, you got my full buy-in. <laughs> I, I, um, having the last couple of years, you know, spending a lot of time with some of the top coaches in the country, it still blows me away how many of the top coaches in the country haven't gravitated this, to this coaching, this long-term model of improvement, helping them transfer train, helping them practice the right way. It, it just blows me away. And, and looking at their menus and and seeing their offering of, of just, it's just my hourly rate. I see that on so many coaches' websites. It's just my hourly rate. And that's all they talk about. And that just doesn't set them up for for success. Could you, I guess, talk through a little bit, you know, again, in the same, the same conversation of trying to help the assistant make this transition I mean, from a business perspective, it, it seems like a no-brainer to me to want to be selling longer-term programming and being there for their as their coach versus just their teaching pro. But how do I, how do I make that transition from assistant pro to full-time coach? And and I guess just walk me through that business, if you would. I think initially, well, let me go back to you when you said when we look at top coaches, I think the first thing assistants can do is break away from what the definition has been for top coach in the game of golf. We don't really measure top coach by who accelerates learning at a rate faster than who else. Like there's not a real good measure of like I would argue a top coach would be somebody that if you did a if you gave each of them a sample set of of players and then said six months later let's measure how much those players learned that that would be the top coach we measure it by who taught Tiger you know or who Golf Magazine puts at the top of a list right and who Golf Digest allows their peers to vote for right I mean that's what's dictated is top coach. So I debate the the definition of top. And if you're an assistant, it depends. If your definition of top coach is, I love helping somebody build their game, develop skill, be happy that they broke 80 for the first time, see me as kind of building their confidence and allowing them to have more independence and autonomy and empowerment in the game of golf so they can love it and play with their friends, that's a top coach. So first thing would be is is that your definition if your definition is no i want to one day teach one of the top players on tour i give them a different pathway because i always say that you could be swimming in a pool of mud and everybody's swimming slow but someone still wins they're still a top swimmer but they're all swimming pretty slowly i've always interpreted the game of golf more that way like just because if everyone's competing in the same pool, which we've been doing forever, then you still have your top coaches. But that's still defined by who's teaching Tiger, who's teaching Dustin, who's teaching Rory um, in in today's game. I, I want to kind of pull people out of that pool and say there's this other pool of who's really developing the player at the club, who's bringing somebody along, getting them invested in the game. Um, and for those assistants, Andy, then I think for them, they, we have to teach them coach the, the difference between teaching and coaching and, and get them to understand teaching is, yes, I can teach somebody the mechanics of the golf swing, of good swing, swing mechanics, of good club delivery. I can certainly stand in front of a clinic and teach them those mechanics. That does not mean somebody learned it. It just means you taught it. There is a difference between student learning and a teacher's ability to teach. And many one-hour lessons are teaching. And teaching is a subcomponent of coaching. Coaching embraces facilitation of learning. 
So that would involve also, do you engage the person in a practice program? Are you available at practice to give feedback? Do you ever see that player play on course so you can see whether there's skill transfer occurring on a golf course or not? And if not, which skills are not transferring and why? And then would you be able to come back and design the practice program appropriately to address those skills that were not transferring? Um, And then building in mental skills like decision-making, course management, green reading, handling pressure situations. And for me, if you look at other sports, coaches do that. I played basketball growing up, baseball growing up, football, soccer. I was an athlete my entire life. Coaches were at practice for every one of those activities. They were at games for every one of those activities other than golf. Golf's like the only sport I ever engaged in that this idea was I only have to see you when I feel I'm broken and you'll give me a lesson and then leave me on my own. It seems a little absurd when you look at the world of sports more broadly. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, does. Well, um, I, I know you've had a lot of coaches who have had incredible, I'll say, business success uh, after going through your program. I mean, give me an idea of some of the 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 lower performing coaches that came through training and where they ended up a, a year later. I mean, they were making. 30k you obviously leave name names out of this but they were making 30k as an assistant pro and now they're making 200k i mean i know you've had had some stories like that would you share a few yeah. of those certainly they um because they have to break away from the model of i have to get i think again what top coaches you tend to hear is you know hey butch Harmon can give 500 bucks for an hour lesson you know, and so how can I get to be that? And I just think that's aspirationally um, not possible for most people. For us to just wait till the day we teach a tour pro so we can charge 500 an hour or wait till we work at a club where everyone's willing to pay 500 an hour. You know, when we do research on what people are willing to pay for a lesson, the average golfer values a lesson somewhere around 50, 60 bucks. Um, they don't. They don't want to spend two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars an hour to teach golf, and we don't all teach at high-end private clubs where that's capable. So what we're teaching players to do is to, frankly, make golf instruction, golf coaching, more affordable by grouping people. If you put people into groups and they learn like other sports are learned, golf is an individual sport that can be taught in groups. It frankly has advantages when groups are available because you can create transfer training conditions like competition, games, motivational. There's there's aspects of the group training that frankly can bring components in that you don't get in an individual lesson. Now, players still need some individual attention because sometimes you have to sit with them and do some teaching about how to deliver a club better. So a blend between individual instruction and then some group supervised practice, some group performing and competing together, and group training makes the game more affordable. Um, and it, by making it more affordable, people come more often. So it's not that everyone needs it more affordable. It allows a parent to sign a kid up to come to practice three days a week. And if my kid comes to see you three days a week or me myself as an adult sees you three days a week, I'm going to get better because I'm at the golf course. I've got my hands on a club. I'm hitting more balls and I'm engaged in a planned design of deliberate practice. And that's what we train the coaches. That's why they make more money. Because now when they have different coaching models, they can, they can make 
350 an hour, not by charging Rick Jensen 350, by working with a group of six people in each of those people paying 50 bucks to be in a training session. But they don't have the models in place, and, it, and it, it's a scary proposition for them. Again, look at the systems that are in place. You get technology like U-Schedule kind of. U-Schedule allows them to do it, but they have to know how to go in and set up group training models. They have to break. Oftentimes, they're at a club with four other teaching professionals who aren't looking to do that, and they're all given private lessons. And you certainly can't go out there and bash your colleagues who are doing private lessons. So how do I offer a coaching model, group training, appropriate coaching, without bashing my colleagues who are at the same club who aren't interested in doing that how do you do that <laughs> that's exactly right it's, I, I just see so many coaches are in exactly that situation where there's multiple pros at the facility that all teach and they just suck into the norm of what everyone's done I always teach them that I say give them a Dr. Phil and just say how's that working for you because that is common on his show. And if you ask most people and go, well, how's that worked for you? How has that individual teaching model, jumping from teacher to teacher, looking for a quick fix, how's that working for you? And then you have to have enough knowledge to explain while it's, why it's broken. So I, in, in you seeing, like I talk about the four steps to mastery. And step one is understanding cause and effect. It is that kind of swing cause and effect analysis prescribed a, a, a solution. Step one is where most teaching is done. And then people run to the golf course and play. They don't engage in step two, which is supervised practice, and step three, which is transfer training. Again, I've worked with touring pros for 30 years. They spend the bulk of their training in the step of transfer training and uh, in, in what's engaged at that step. Amateurs spend no time in transfer training. They, they go from a lesson, and then they test the validity of the lesson on the golf course playing. And when there's a breakdown, no one's there to explain. It's because you've never engaged in these two middle steps. And so I draw that on a napkin with a player and say, if a teaching program does not include some learning on steps two and three, you're not learning. You're just learning why you're bad but you're not actually learning and developing skill because skill development happens through the first three steps, not just on step one, just tells you what you have to learn. Learning occurs in supervised deliberate practice and in transfer training. And then it will transfer to the course where you can play. Step four is play, but you can't jump from step one to four, which is kind of YouTube learning. I can get on YouTube, get a concept, and I'll go play on the golf course and see if that concept works. How's that working for you? So for many assistants, they can create this program and say, I designed the program because the research supports that it ought to be done differently. And if you agree with that, and what you've been doing in the past hasn't worked for you, give it a try. I think you'll see a very different result. Um, but it is also that thing, if you build it, they will come. Many pros, it's a scary thing to build it. And that's what I share. I'll, I'll, I'll go through some of that at the training we'll do there at the Colorado PGA. For me, even, I initially got in the game and I was teaching one-hour lessons. Even as a sports psychologist with a doctorate, I was doing it through one-hour lessons initially because that was the model that was out there. I didn't know any better. And when I navigated away from that, my income went up tenfold tenfold and people did come but i was definitely an oddball because other people weren't doing what i was doing 
I love when it. you do it's it right, difficult. you don't need a thousand people doing it. Because you Say have that louder. Say that louder. I, I, I've had that I did an exact conversation with a coach yesterday trying to build his business. And he's like, I just need more people. I need more people. And I said, no, you don't. You need to teach the people that you have more lessons. You've got more than enough students. I'll share some of those statistics. Like I've done surveys of all the coaches that are in our coaching association. And the mat, we, we always call it the magic metric. The magic metric is the number of students that you see more than four hours a month. The magic metric. Like I can break it right down. I'll, I'll show them the stats. But it's basically, do you see students at least an hour a week, not an hour a month? And ideally more than that. Um, but certainly it's the regular consistent student who's seeing you regularly and the number of those students that you engage in that way, which causes someone to frankly double their income as a coach. They go from on average making 50 grand to making 100 grand when we just sort the coaches by that one metric. I love it. I loved your comment too, Dr. Rick. Uh, how is that working for you? And it's a. Uh... It, it reminds me a little bit of just training sales and, and having been around coaches my whole career. I, we've never had a lot of sales training. And I'm, I'm curious if you have, number one, I guess, is, is one question for you. And then, and then number two, if you haven't, how have you figured out how to sell this to people? Is it just based on your own credibility? As a, I mean, obviously, you're a doctor. You know, you've got uh, lots and lots of training in this space. Is it the tour player credibility that you get? Or, I mean, how do you sell this? Uh, and then how do you recommend that we sell it as coaches when we don't have your credentials? I, I think, um, well, Andy, part of, and, and you know this, I spend half my business is in golf. And then the other half of my business is I work with, um, I work in the world of financial services. So I kind of have a business consulting, business management coaching business in financial service. I work with financial advisors and and wholesaling firms who are selling financial products through like, so it's the Merrill Lynch's, the Morgan Stanley's, the UBS's of the world, and then the AIG's and the Oppenheimer's and Lord Abbott, the product companies who, so I kind of have a business consulting side of it that I've done. Uh, again, I, I was fortunate when I was in college, I was doing that as a job and I've just never stopped. I, it's how I paid for graduate school and I've always done that side of the business. So I, I wouldn't say I've, I've gone specifically to sales training, but I've lived around sales professionals for 30 years. So I vicariously get it by sitting at conferences where I'm a keynote and then watching someone else talk about sales training. And, and part of that is, again, just as you're talking about it, you have to have credibility, you have to have competence, and you have to be client-centric. So I always talk about it as the three C's. Um, so for me, I do lean on my PhD. I do lean on the fact that I work with touring pros and I actively went after those forms of credibility because when I can, when someone does call me doctor or someone does see my bio and see that I've worked with people with one majors, it helps. It helps because people tend to listen. So golf professionals do want to go get additional certification and they do want to work with better players. Um, it's not the only thing because you have to follow that up with competence. You've got to now go get education and deliver on your value proposition. So you could work with top players, but I've worked with some coaches that have, you know, taught touring pros 
and they start ripping apart my golf swing because we're at an event together. I'm like, why would you rip apart my golf swing before you even ask me if I am going to practice? At this point in the podcast, we lost Dr. Jensen, but we're able to get him back on the line pretty quickly. I think I was mentioning about the three C's to the three C's to, um, to what I call it, the three C's to building trust. I think, you know, and that's the credibility, having competence to, to kind of make sure you can deliver on that value proposition. And then frankly, putting the client's interest first, like really being more student centric. If you watch much of golf instruction today, it's always seems to be too much about what the golf professional knows. Like when I watch a golf professional in front of a track man, it really doesn't seem about that. I've watched golf professionals give lessons. They're not even looking at the student. They're looking at the track man screen and talking about all these numbers and how impressive the numbers are. And I, I don't, I've seen it where they haven't even watched where the ball flies. They just kind of look at the number and go, now you're getting it like, like it's a video game that's being played. And they're forgetting they're teaching humans who they're building relationships with. And I, again, I'm a psychologist by training. The relationship is the most important factor in providing or facilitating change in another human. It's not how much knowledge you have about psychoanalytic on that by behavioral strategies, you know, cognitive behavioral strategy. It's not the strategy itself. It's the relationship that you form with the person that you're working with. And I think that's no different among coaches. I think coaches want to have long-term helping relationships with quality people and they're going to get better. Couldn't agree more. I, I love it. That's the, the long-term piece is the one I feel like golf pros are just, as I've said multiple times, just, just whiffing on. The, the difficult thing for a lot of people though, is it, this takes a, a significant step. And for you to say, well, I'm going to change what I'm doing every day and, and essentially use this model moving forward, it takes a big leap. And I think that's, you know, hopefully what people are going to get out of, you know, our workshop here coming up is, hey, this, these are the steps. And, and yes, you can. Yeah, I hope that helps build their confidence. That, that's to me is the where the the, the weakest link is to use your, uh, your your phrase there, Dr. Rick. The the weakest link I feel like for most golf coaches is I don't have the confidence that this is going to work and this is my livelihood and geez I can do okay just doing my one hour lessons like everybody else does and man I'm going to just bumble all over myself when I try to sell this to somebody for the first time and just building that confidence I think is a, is a huge step. And one of the things they can do, Andy, and that's where I think for me, being around golf, I mean, many of my best friends are golf coaches. And so I just feel like I'm not speaking from an ivory tower at a university research center talking about motor learning. Like, I have a degree in it, but I live in the real world. Like, I run a business. I run a coaching business. My best friends are golf coaches. Um, so they're going to call me out on and go, that's all fine in theory, but that doesn't work. You have to get something. You have to blend the business side of it with the theory side of it. You can't just start something that doesn't sell. And so even when I changed my coaching business, I didn't change it all at once. And I'll share this as we get out there. I changed the way I coached on Mondays. And then I just kept training the same way the rest of the week. And I tested it on Mondays, but I got to where I was making $100,000 a year on, a mon on Mondays. And then I thought, okay, this, this works. I think I'll do it different Tuesday through Saturday. 
but I tested it on my Mondays. I, I built a coaching program that I offered only on Mondays. I sold it on Mondays. I tried to fill it. And once I filled it, it was ridiculous how much better those players were getting. It was ridiculous how much more money I was making. And I was like, I think I'll see if I can fill a Tuesday. And then once I filled a Tuesday, I'm like, this is stupid. Who would do it any other way? And then I changed. I use myself as my own guinea pig. If, and, and I teach pros to do the same. There's no way you want to go blow everything up on a leap of faith. You have to systematically build it into your program. Love it. And you mentioned a little bit about player improvement, and there's there's a comment that you made years ago that has stuck with me forever. You're not good enough to choke. Would you, uh, I guess, elaborate a little bit more on how you help that player or a player like that make the realization that they're not good enough? Uh, I learned that. I learned that experientially, frankly. When I went to graduate school, I studied to be a sports psychologist. I thought, and then I'm like, you know, a lot of that's around the mental skills in sport, you know, and how to manage pressure, how to deal with excessive thinking, how to manage attention. And I kind of came out with this toolbox of mental skills, and I targeted the PGA and LPGA tours as a target market. And I started working with those players. I was lucky. I got, I had access. And then I start working with them, and I'm, I'm teaching them all these mental things, which, frankly, at the time was all built around, like, pre-shot routines, you know, like what to do in your pre-shot routine to put yourself in a mental state where you'll maximize performance. And I'm doing this with all these people, and they're still missing cuts. And they're getting beat. But now I'm out there, and I'm, I'm looking at they're getting beat because they can't putt. And they can't hit strike a golf. Now, they could because they're on tour, but relative to the people who are winning, those people were just making more putts. They were hitting more greens. They were hitting more fairways. But my players were missing cuts but feeling good about it because I made them positive. I'm like, great. So now I have a bunch of positive losers that I'm coaching, but they feel good about themselves. And this wasn't what I was into it for because they wanted to win. And so when I realistically started really evaluating what is the reason why they weren't winning, mental skills, frankly, are not as important as ball control skills. Because I work with other players that, frankly, weren't great mentally, but God, they could control a golf ball. And they could be mad doing it. And they could be thinking multiple things sometimes. Could they get better? Definitely. But why were they winning? because they had incredible ball control skills. So not all skills are the same, but frankly, when you're a psychologist, you want to say everything's 100% mental. And if you don't really understand the difference between mental and not mental, if you feel like you've done everything you can to teach a person their golf swing, it's easy to say to a player, well, I don't know, I think your golf swing looks great, so go talk to Jensen. But then when they come to me, I evaluate skills at a, at a relative level. For many teaching pros, they haven't seen many people hit a golf ball as good as a touring pro. And if you don't work with multiple touring pros, you don't realize there's even a massive difference between a top 10 player and a person who's ranked 100. There is a big difference. It's not 100% mental, even at that level. And so when I started to really pay attention to statistics and really doing skill analysis, I started being able to differentiate where someone's weaknesses were. And then, then it changed for me. I started realizing, 
Greg Norman lost the 1996 Masters against Faldo, everyone calls that a choke. And if you look at his stats, his ball striking stats were horrendous going into that event. Horrendous. He told me personally he knew that they, that his stats were horrendous going in, and he had no confidence going into that event. No confidence. And he played out of his mind the first three days. And he described it as it was the luckiest three days he had ever played in his words, and then went on to kind of go, the last day was when the pressure broke down the skill that was already weak. And so I refer to it as a weak link's break under pressure because under the pressure moments, what you look at Dustin Johnson at Chambers Bay, the 2015 U.S. Open, he three putts the last green to lose that tournament again to Jordan Spieth. Had a chance to get into a playoff if he birdied the last hole at Chambers Bay and he three putts from 12 feet. And everyone kind of views that as a joke. But his putting statistics, he was ranked like 170th on tour in putting. But if you looked at his statistics in ball striking, he was like top five. In same hole, same day, same tournament, he smashes a driver like 340 yards right down the 18th fairway. And then he hit the green. To, he hit a ball within 12 feet from 250 yards with a five iron. So how'd he choke? He didn't choke on the driver and he didn't choke on the iron. But then if you look at his putting stats... He's got to win the tournament with a putter in his hand, but he's ranked 170th on tour. There is a correlation between mental skills and technical, or I should call it ball control, like actual physical skills. And to separate those two things is, I I just, I don't think you can. I think you have to look, I call choking when someone's ranked number five in the world, and then their skill breaks down because they got so nervous. Let's start talking about anxiety management, and let's do some mental skills training. But in a case like that, I wouldn't be telling Dustin Johnson, let's sit on a couch and be kumbaya, you know, and work on your mental skills. Let's, let's, let's go fix your putting, and then let's see if it holds up. So I've always worked with, oh, I shouldn't say always. In the last 10 years, I don't even see a player if I'm not with their coach. Because it has to be a, it's, it's a player support team. We should be all working together. I don't want a coach to send someone to me and just check out and say, it's got to be mental. Go sit with Jensen. Yeah, you got to have a team there together. I love hearing that there's more than one person, and no one's discounting somebody else in that in that process as well. So, what? Let's let's say I've got a player who, you know, they're a 90 shooter, and for their, you know, for their score, their ball striking is decent. You know, what are the mental things that you see commonly with the the average player? And then, how can you know me as a PGA pro? I'm not trained in, in sports psychology, other than you know reading your stuff and reading some of, you know, golf is not a game of perfect. For from Dr. Rotella, like how can I then train that stuff if I if I do recognize there are some mental deficiencies? Uh, I think you have to go, you have to find people who are willing to train pros to do it. Like for me, I want to teach coaches what they can teach. So I'll break it down. It's not that complex and it doesn't have to be. I think many sports psychologists are looking to for the referral, frankly. I don't want the referral from a coach. I think the coach should keep that money. I think the coach could train that. So teaching a coach how to do some basic anxiety management training and build pressure into practice conditions is doing 
doable. They don't need to have a PhD in psychology to do that. To teach a coach that players having too many swing thoughts is detrimental to their ball control skills is understandable. But in, for me to teach coaches how to not overload a player's mind with too many swing thoughts through the lesson process, um, a teacher could do that and teach someone how to have a quiet mind when they're playing. Frankly, they could do it if they just would incorporate it into their practice strategies and into their training sessions better. So for me, you know, if you look at, again, at other sports, it's not like other sports are having all the players sit down in a room with a sports, with a mental guru and getting them to think right. I would argue that their training imposes pressure, imposes attentional demands, imposes conditions that the player through every day and training in that environment is developing mental skills to combat those various conditions. And for coaches to understand, if you embed those transfer conditions in the training process and then just provide some basic solutions and guidance for players to succeed, they'll do it. They'll do it. It it doesn't have to be separated out of, of the of the coaching process. Um, but again, they do need some education. Like I, I provide some courses through our certified golf coaches associating on mental skills training. But the objective is I need you guys to do this, not me. Don't refer them to me. You can do this. And, and I, but I keep it simple. Uh, again, they don't, who wants to go back to school for four years to go get a PhD in psychology if you're already coaching golf? Um, let's just build one. So I can break like the, the mental skills down into four, four specific mental skills like that I can it's it's basically attention control thought control basically positive focus of energy or negative focus of energy those two so it's thought control attention control a person's focus of energy and their ability to manage their intensity or their or pressure and once someone understands those four they can kind of categorize people that way love it great stuff I, I know uh you've got other things to get to. I, I could talk to you all day long. I love our conversations. I've learned so much from you over the years. Um, anything else? I know we've touched on a bunch of different topics today and with a lot more detail to come uh, when you're here in, uh, in April. Anything else that, that uh, PGA professionals in the Colorado section should expect to, to take away from coming to the Teaching and Coaching Summit with, uh, with, with you as our host? I know when, in environments like this within the PGA, for me, it's, it's basically back to our two missions. Is, is The first takeaway is how can you be an effect, a, a more effective teacher? Like what, what are you currently doing? And come and benchmark that again against what I might share with them as this is what people who really understand how to facilitate student learning are doing. And just come and do an assessment of, uh, and open your eyes to other, other ways. I, I try to be very concrete and provide actionable things, not just talk from research, but say this is how this can be done, here's how the program can be put in place, and here's the types of things you would want to be doing to do that. So in, in April, it's half the session would be just how can you be more effective at facilitating skill acquisition? Where are your blind spots? And come and learn kind of where several of those are and a few things that you could take away and do differently. The second takeaway I would argue is how to make a better living and live a better life. Like golf professionals need to make more money. 
Um, the game of golf is already difficult to make more money, and it's becoming commoditized. Golf instruction is becoming commoditized, meaning it's on. You can get it on YouTube for free. You can, you know, you can get go through the golf pass at the Golf Channel for ninety nine bucks a year and get in front of the best so called best teachers in the game. So if golf professionals don't change the way they're delivering coaching programs, green grass co- coaching programs, they're going to starve because it's a race to the bottom when people can get $99 a year YouTube instruction. Um, so the other side of it will be where's the future of golf instruction for these people so they can actually retire and not die on the lesson tee, put some money away for retirement, put their kids through college. They should make more money, but many of them haven't had business management training or someone who's kind of looking out for their business interests, and I just feel like I do that, and we'll cover that as well. You do it incredibly well. I've uh, been very fortunate to see uh, hundreds of different of industry experts speak. And, and Dr. Rick, I got to tell you, you have been by far the most impactful person I've ever spent time with. So I, I can't wait to have you here uh, in April to continue the learning. You're too kind. Thank you so much. Dr. Rick, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you in April, hopefully uh, with a pretty good crowd uh, from our Colorado PGA members here. So thank you for your time. And uh, again, look forward to seeing you soon. appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Dr. Rick. Talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.